And that's the sermon. Let's pray. <laughs> if you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to the book of Exodus. If you are a guest of ours this morning, you may be wondering, what have I walked into? It is not our normal practice to take a minute and a half and show a film from 1956. Most of you were not in 1956. Certainly, some of you were. But that is the iconic image we picture in our minds when we think of the miracle we come to today. If you are a guest of ours, we're walking through the book of Exodus verse by verse. I know that Josh welcomed you earlier. I'm so honored that you're here, and we hope you're encouraged, whether you're watching online or in person. We began walking through the book of Exodus back when school began in August of last year, and we find ourselves in the third series, a series we allowed Pharaoh himself to name. I've been reminding you of that. If you look on the screen, you'll see the verse where the name comes from. The Bible says in Exodus 12, 31, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people. And this is that great climax where after 10 horrific plagues on Egypt, the resistance of Pharaoh was broken, and he said, get out. And that's what we've been doing over the last few weeks. We've been walking through this journey of this group of people numbering in the tens of thousands attempting to leave 400 years of captivity and go to a promised land that was promised to their forefathers. None of these Jews knew Joseph. They were somewhere between 14 and 15 generations beyond Joseph, around 400 years. And yet God had raised up Moses to deliver on his promise. And there are parts of the Old Testament that naturally are unfamiliar to the average church attender, the average congregant, the average church member. And then there are some miracles like the one we come to today that, to be honest with you, most people inside and outside of Christianity, most people familiar with or unfamiliar with Judaism, know the story of Moses seeing the people through the Red Sea because God split the waters. Now, when we come to a familial, a familial, a familiar miracle like this, one of the things that we have to do is we have to make sure we don't allow our familiarity to cause us to miss the real reason it's in the passage. I mean, this is something that's so epic, Disney has depicted it. I mean, we've also seen not only animations, it's made its way into art. The year I came into the world, 1977, a guy named Bob Marley released an album called Exodus. And in that album, an album of social revolution, he wrote a song, Exodus Movement, Ja People, Oh Yeah, Send Us. And this is what Bob Marley says, another Moses from across the Red Sea, send us another brother Moses from across the Red Sea. So if reggae artists and social activists are singing about it, if Disney is depicting it, if Charlton Heston captured it on screen, when we think about all these, we have to recognize, why would God give us such an epic account of such a significant moment? This is my contention this morning. My conviction is that there's more to the miracle than what you probably think. 
Because the temptation is to say, well, pastor, I came today as a Bible-believing Christian, and so I believe that happened, and that's wonderful. Now, I'm not really sure what that has to do with my Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or with the situations I'm facing in my life. I can assure you it has a lot to do with it, and I'm going to show you how. You have to do it in two stages, though. The first thing you need to do is just see the miracle. This is a story of glory. In fact, with your Bible open to Exodus chapter 14, notice verse 4. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory. That's the key verse to understanding the entire chapter. The entire chapter is the entire account. And yet God tells us in verse 4, Look across the page in verse 17, or perhaps scroll up on your device. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go into, go in after them, and I will get glory. So we know there's no mystery. We know that the text intent is that God get the glory. Now, the actual miracle doesn't happen until about verse 21. Let's read that together. I'll read aloud. You read along with me silently in your copy of God's Word. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in a pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. One of the things you'll notice in this chapter is that the Egyptians end up with masterfully correct theology. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I believe the Bible. I believe it is God's Word. And there are people who would come to an account like this and say, well, surely this couldn't have really happened. I would remind you that you are going to be deeply troubled and disappointed if you begin to pick and choose which miracles happened and which ones did not. We've already seen amazing miracles from creation, Genesis chapter 1, all the way through this deliverance. The Bible is a book of supernatural and divine activity, and yet it continues to prove itself reliable and true. Do you know why? I've met many Jews. <laughs> they still exist today. 
We, we know it's no miracle that Pharaoh's armies pursued them. We know the Red Sea has always been the Red Sea and always sat there. So if this miracle did not take place, then how do you explain the nation of Hebrews that would emerge in the promised land, which would ultimately deliver to us our Messiah? And when you think about the way this story unfolds, it's important to understand the route. Uh, just uh, for quick reference, I've put a map on the screen. And when you think about Egypt, I want you to think about it there at the mouth of the Nile River. And the Egyptians would have allowed them to leave. And when they allowed them to leave, they would have gone to your right or walked to the east. Now, you'll see the Red Sea down at the lower right-hand corner of your screen. And this is the route that most historians believe the Hebrews took. Now, if you get into the scholarship, there's some debate as to the actual place they crossed. There, there's also a linguistic debate because one of the words that's used that is translated in many modern translations as the Red Sea can also be translated the Sea of Reeds. So, liberal theologians have said it's not the Red Sea, it's the shallow headwaters that were between the Red Sea and, of course, the Mediterranean, and the reeds were growing, meaning it was shallow water. Reeds don't grow out of deep water. And, and a storm happened and some supernatural event took place that dried the ground for, for people to walk. But then the Egyptians got mired in the mud. Now, the great story about that that every seminary student hears is the liberal theologian teaching that in some non-Bible-believing seminary and saying, this is not really a miracle. This is just described as a miracle. And the old boy in the back saying, hallelujah. And the seminary professor saying, well, son, I've just told you this must not be a miracle. Your Bible doesn't really have miracles in it. These are ancient people who don't really understand nature. And he said, no. He said, if you are telling me that they walked in shallow water, that means my God drowned a whole army in four inches. <laughs> the interesting thing about the account, though, is that we see the divine supernatural event. I, I do believe that the scripture tells us they came to a large body of water that was uncrossable, thus the idea of being trapped. We also know that the event didn't happen with some system of weather. The, the text is very clear that nothing happened until Moses raised his staff. I don't know about you, but human beings even today don't have the ability to manipulate that type of act of nature. This, of course, is a miracle. And, and when we see it for what it is, we, we then have to come to the place where once we see God's glory in all of the grandeur of it, we have to apply it to our lives. How do you apply a story like this? Well, actually, there's some mistakes that people tend to make. They spiritualize miracles and miss the meaning. Let me just tell you a few. This is not about your Red Sea. In other words, it's wrong to take the Bible and see some miraculous account and say, and this means, church family, the next time you find yourself between a rock and a hard place, if you'll just lift up your hand before God, I promise you, he will divide every obstacle in front of you. But that's not the point of the text. Can God make a way where there seems to be no way? Absolutely, we sing that. Did God do that for these children of slaves and slaves themselves? Yes, he did. 
But miracle accounts are not given to us that we might spiritualize them and demand God to act in the exact same way. I landed last night. I'm I'm a bit under the weather. Thank you for the many of you who've uh, been praying for me this morning on our staff. But I landed last night late from preaching a men's conference in Houston, Texas, and I was asked to deal with the story of David and Goliath. That's another one where people misapply it all the time. They, They say, in whatever giants in your life, by God's grace, you can defeat it. Well, what happens when a Christian dies of cancer? Did he or she not defeat that giant? What, what happens when you don't get that job that you desperately needed, wanted, and felt like you were qualified for? Did you not slay that giant? That's not the point of David and Goliath. If you're anywhere in the story of David and Goliath, you and me are the soldiers who run off the hill after our champion has defeated the giant, and we give chase to the army because we know the enemy is on borrowed time. David is a foreshadow of Christ. Goliath is everything that opposes God. And as David walks down into the valley of Elah and defeats the arch enemy of the people of God, he told him, you come to me with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the word of the name of the Lord God Almighty. And therefore, as a Christian reads the story of David and Goliath, he or she should be reminded that our Savior came and faced the greatest giant, the greatest enemy, the greatest curse against God, that sin, hell, death, and the grave. And on Calvary, he defeated. And on Easter Sunday morning, he stamped his approval to resurrection for every single person. And therefore, we chase the enemy because our champion has defeated our giant. That's a better application. So too here. This passage is not even about the faith of the Jews. In fact, they really don't show off a lot of faith. I'll show you in just a moment. It's not about a supernatural defeat of every enemy you come against. The reality is, is that there are times in a Christian's life where you're going to face things and people and persecution, and God's going to go before you, and he's going to solve the problem. There are other times where he may ask you to endure an enemy, to endure persecution, and he choose to get glory through the suffering. What we're going to find as we continue to journey through the book of Exodus is that this is not the first army that comes against the Jews. And by the way, the Jews do not win every single battle. So you can't take the Red Sea miracle and spiritualize it to the point that you miss the meaning. I believe it's even better than we initially think. It's about seeing the glory of God. I mean, that's ultimately why we're told this account. In fact, we're told that by God himself. He says in verse 4 and in verse 17, I will get the glory. So how do we see his glory? Let me offer you very briefly three ways. The glory of God is seen First, in his sovereignty. How do we define sovereignty? Well, Wayne Grudem defines it this way. I I like this definition. Sovereignty, God's exercise of power over all creation. Now, look how the chapter begins in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahaharoth between Migdal and the sea. From Baal-Zavon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel. So remember now, God is telling Moses what Pharaoh's about to do. Who's in control? God. This is what he says. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. 
The wilderness has shut them in. And I, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Often we think miracles are reactionary. God looks down and goes, my goodness. Well, well good gracious, look. There's a leper. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. They killed my son. I better roll the stone away. Or look at all these Jews. Can you believe that Pharaoh is pursuing them? There's an ocean, the Red Sea. I, I better do something. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible actually teaches that God is sovereignly control, in control over all situations for his glory before the situations even develop or occur. Now, many Christians struggle with this because they say, well, if God is in complete and total control, what do we do with situations where we see suffering that seems unjust and we see sorrow that seems undeserved? We see families walking through illnesses. I remind them that if we become very focused on our perspective, we can become bitter. We can become resentful. But let's remember something. Might I remind us today, if you're here, and in your life, you have professed Christ. You have trusted in him as your savior. We're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. We're not even home. This is not home. And he's so good and so kind that not only are we able to live with the security of eternity, he wants others to go. So he leaves us here in a broken world filled with sin that he might display his glory through us so that others might repent and believe because this is not home. Church family, we're going to heaven. And, and, and therefore, all of a sudden, my theology of suffering falls under my theology of sovereignty. Then it gives my suffering purpose. I may not live a long life. I may not make it to my late 90s and be surrounded by my babies and their babies around a home and a bed. I might not get there, but I'm going to get there. And if the Lord in his grace calls you or I to walk through suffering for his glory, it is not out from under his control, which means my suffering, just like my celebrating, has purpose. And so what we find here is that the first of many acts of God are unfolding as the Jews make their way to the promised land. Now, the interesting thing about this sovereignty is that we see it in that God set the trap and God's going to send the test. Now, you would think God was done with Pharaoh. I mean, he'd already broken the back of his will. He had released, Pharaoh had released the people but God knew that Pharaoh was not repentant. He was regretful. There's a big difference. And God said, I'm going to once and for all show these people who oppressed my people who I am. And so it wasn't that Moses read his GPS wrong and put them against the Red Sea. God did. He said it. And the interesting thing is, is that this is the first test of faith for the Jews. Look what happens in verse 10. 
When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now, now let me just remind you, these are the same people who have watched 10 plagues unfold, and now they're fearful. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, and I want you to listen to the irony of this. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? Wait a minute now. Aren't these the same folks that said, we want to be free. Let us go. You ever had somebody beg you to take you somewhere? Once you get there, the food's bad. And they go, well, I didn't even want to come. Yes, you did. You told me we wanted to go. I'm the one that wanted to stay home. You wanted to go out. Well, I don't remember saying that. Oh, a little convenient amnesia there. I remember saying that. I wish I had instant replay sometimes as dad and a husband. Let's go back and revisit this. They said to Moses, I got one brother tracking with me. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Let me just tell you, they never said that. Once the plagues begin to unfold, after that first showdown where they do begin to question Moses, they see and affirm what God is doing. And so they're making up facts that do not exist. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The key word there is serve. Because as I taught you several, several months ago, the idea of serve is not just to render a service. It is to come up under. It is to follow. It is to submit. It really flirts with the idea of worship. They're ultimately saying, look, we were slaves in Egypt, and we know there were all kinds of gods, and we're going to learn later that some of those gods had become the gods of the Hebrews. This is one of the reasons that God is continuing to establish his glory. They're saying, we, we have seen all that. And we'd rather go back there than die right here. Here's the interesting thing, though. When you read the chapter, Pharaoh doesn't say go destroy them. He says go get them back. Do you know why? Well, look what the Scripture says beginning in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us. Some scholars believe that this was a matter of weeks, for sure days, since the 10th plague. Do you know what happens if an economy is propped up by slavery? Well, all you have to do is open up your American history book and look at the reconstruction years of the South. After the Civil War, both black and white were broken. In fact, the entire society had to be rebuilt economically because the economics had wickedly been built on the backs of slave labor. And when you study Reconstruction, you find tremendous amounts of suffering, not, not only by freed slaves, but also by poor whites who had never owned slaves. And those who did own slaves, many became bankrupt and lost everything that they had because the economy was built on free labor. It took decades and decades and decades, not to mention the fact that Sherman burned Atlanta and much of Atlanta and other parts of 
large cities within the south lay decimated. This is what we're seeing happen in a different type of situation with what Putin is doing to Ukraine. He's systematically trying to destroy the infrastructure and the buildings. And all that will eventually have to be rebuilt when the dust settles of this war. So Pharaoh's looking around and going, wait a minute. I just let the entire slave labor of our economy leave. Go get them back. He does not say kill them. Even though we know that slavery is wicked, a slave does have worth in the eyes of the wicked master inasmuch as he or she brings forth labor. A dead slave has no worth. And so the Jews say they're going to destroy us. They automatically went to the worst possible conclusion, which maybe dying would be better than going back into the oppression, but at that point, they don't see it, and they cry out. Now, look what happens in their response. The Scripture says this in verse 13, and when Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Do, do you know why Moses could say that? Well, remember the first paragraph? God told Moses, Moses, I'm going to forever break the back of Pharaoh. And Moses renders this incredibly powerful speech. If you're looking for a memory verse out of chapter 14, this is a great memory verse to remember. It basically has two parts, three parts. Do not fear, stand firm, and watch the Lord. The idea being that in situations of supernatural intervention, there are many times where we cannot control what's happening. We cannot control the block path in front of us, and we cannot control the enemy on our heels. And in those moments, the activity that God calls us to is the exact opposite of what human nature often demands of us. When I'm in a situation and my back's against the wall, when I'm in a situation and I don't understand what God is doing, when I'm in a situation and I'm questioning whether or not I have even followed him correctly, I want to go fix it. I want to go solve it. I want to go do something. And Moses says, that's not where God wants you. Just stand firm. Stand firm, do not fear, and watch the Lord. When you really care about leveraging your life for the kingdom, one of the things you'll flirt with is exhaustion. I don't mean physical exhaustion. People in, the, in Christ and people who don't know the Lord deal with physical exhaustion. I'm talking about that spiritual exhaustion where you try to make things happen in your family, in your marriage, in your life that aren't for you to make them happen. One of the best pieces of advice a pastor gave me when I was a young pastor, I'm not anymore young, you took care of that, but one of the best, best pieces of information was he said, son, don't go be the Holy Spirit. Help people who are in front of you, speak truth to them, love them, be an example to them, but you cannot fix people. You can't solve every problem, you can't do everything, and you certainly can't take everybody else's burden and put it on your shoulders as if you're the one to solve it. You are not the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing about that is that if we were to go back into the Old Testament before the fruition of the theology that we have today, Moses is saying, you're right, you stuck. You can't drain the sea 
And you certainly can't defeat an army of chariots, which were to be feared. So stop being afraid. Remember that God's brought you all this way. Stand firm and watch what he does. Now, it's interesting how this word stand firm continues to come up in Scripture. Let me give you just a few examples. In 2 Chronicles 20, 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah, O Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Fast forward to the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians. Be watchful. Men, here's a great challenge. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Stop running. One of my challenges this weekend to those men I had the privilege of preaching is that stop living on the reaction. Stop being reactive. Stop being defensive. Be offensive. Chase the enemy. When you see sin, kill it in your own heart. If there's a struggle, try to be a part of the redemptive outcome. Do something. Many men struggle in churches because they're brought to a point of salvation, and then we tell them, come, sit down every week, listen to the expert on the stage, tell you how to live your life, and good luck. When actually the most fulfilling thing for a man to do is to roll his sleeves up and serve the Lord and lead his family and pray over his wife and make a decision and a difference in his home and in his workplace and be on the offensive. Stand firm. Don't give any ground. We see it elsewhere too. After 1 Corinthians, I would simply show you this next passage. You can put it on the screen. When we think about it in Ephesians 6, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Notice Paul doesn't say, well, you don't have to get dressed. God's going to handle it. No. Put on the armor of God and be ready to stand firm. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So sometimes in the Christian life, we don't know what to do. We're not sure what path to take. We're not sure that we have it within us to defeat the enemy before us. We find ourselves in a quandary of confusion and doubt. And it is in those moments that the scriptures say, stand firm. Don't move off of what you know to be true and don't sell yourself short of watching God do what only he can do. Stand firm. Church family, we're going to have to do this as Christians. Some of you will be with the Lord in the next 20 or 30 years. I rejoice in that. I certainly don't want that to happen for you today, but I rejoice in your home going. Others of you, though, like me, are raising little ones. I believe with all my heart that our children will be a part of a nation and a country that looks far different than ours. The militant ideology of people who would oppose everything that Christ came to give us is running rampant. We don't live in fear. I'm not interested in uh, sword rattling. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in seeking out conflict. But some of you have already or will face a decision in your life where you will stand on your faith and it may cost you your job. Where you will stand on your faith and it may cost you an opportunity. Where you will stand on your faith and it costs you a friend. Where you will stand on your faith and it costs you a financial gain. And in those moments, the scripture tells us, stand firm. The Lord's got it. So we see the glory of God in his sovereignty and then the actual miracle says we see the glory of God in salvation. 
In fact, he uses the word salvation throughout all the passage. I I love what happens beginning in verse 21 when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back. And if you go all the way down to verse 30, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now notice the verb. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used. So this idea that God's glory was seen in salvation. Now this is where the miracle gets really good. It gets really good. Every moment in the Old Testament where God is bringing salvation is a foreshadow of the entire point of this book. This book is one redemptive story of God pursuing a rebellious creation. And we know that the ultimate gift given to any person that's lost is salvation. And salvation really is God making a way. And not only does he make a way, he makes a way where where there's no way. They couldn't build rafts. They couldn't go around. They certainly couldn't turn and face the Egyptians. There was no way. And so the Lord made a way where there was no way. In my sin, there's no way for me to get to heaven. You've heard it said before from this pulpit, there's only one way to heaven. Let me add a caveat. There's actually two. There is another way to live a perfect, sinless life. There's just only one guy that did that. For the rest of us, that means I have to go to option two, which is where there is no way, he made a way. And I seem to remember, mm-hmm, I'd have some church in here, where he said, I am the way. There's no way, and then God makes a way. And the interesting thing is, is that there's this powerful theme, if you love literature, of the relationship between God making a way and water crossing. In fact, we we see this all the way through the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, late in the story, Joshua said to the people, he's telling them about their past. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, the Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Meaning, before we crossed over, we were as lost as the rest of the world. And then Joshua's the one who does what? He leads them to their second water crossing. The first one is the Red Sea. But 40 years later, what happens in Joshua chapter 3? Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. They've done that before, haven't they? Their parents had. Remember, the generation that crosses the Red Sea ends up rebelling. We'll see that in the next few weeks. And when they do, God does not judge them eternally, but he does say the consequences of your sin is that you'll not see the promised land. But I'm going to keep my promise to your children, which is why a generation is considered 40 years. For 40 years, you will wonder. But it's interesting that the children of the Red Sea crossers got to cross the Jordan on dry ground. And I seem to remember 
what Paul did in the book of 1 Corinthians when he says these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's referencing this miracle. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, that doesn't mean that Moses was their savior, but he was. He was the instrument God chose to use to bring salvation. The lifting of the staff brought forth the manifestation of the power of God. And guess who Moses is a foreshadow of? Christ, the better Moses, when he's lifted up on the cross, splits the gap between God and man. And so the scripture teaches us, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Fast forward to the New Testament. What does Paul say about baptism? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. He's not talking about water here, but he's talking about what water baptism represents. This is why sometimes when pastors baptize, they say, buried in death, buried with him in his death, raised again with his life. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now drop this into the beautiful biology of babies. What is the sign that a baby is about to come into this world, ladies? Water. This is why Jesus said, you must be born of water, and you must be born of the Spirit. All of it's one plan. Connect the dots and see what he's doing. I was born of water the day my mother gave birth to me. Born of the Spirit when Christ gave me a new heart. And guess what? That's when I was born again. And then baptized in the fellowship of the believers to symbolically show the passing of death to life, which came that day in that little baptismal pool, symbolically through the water. This is one God with one redemptive plan, and he's showing us everything that he is preparing to accomplish, and we see it in salvation. But he didn't just make a way. This is so good. He made war. I like the fact that my God didn't just say, let me get you out of here. No, no, no. He said, let me get you out of here and let me destroy your enemy. In fact, I read the miracle a few moments ago. After the Israelites marched through The Egyptians follow, and God creates chaos and dumps them into the sea. And the Scripture literally says, beginning in verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and, you know, he could have just let them pass. And, second phrase, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the sea shore. Now, if you'll allow me, this is a real miracle. It really happened, and it had real consequences. But as I have tried to show you, it is also a foreshadow and a greater picture of the greatest sea crossing. That is the sea of sin being divided that we may cross over and be with the Lord. Now watch this. I would be really skeptical of my salvation if Jesus only saved me And did not turn around and defeat the power of my sin to come back and get me. I I need him not only to save me, I need him to destroy my enemy. 
This is why the prophet says it this way, and I'll put it on the screen. He says these words in Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. My God is going to stomp my sin. Now watch. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So every dead Egyptian body that floated up that morning was a reminder to those Hebrews, there is no God but Yahweh, and there is never going to be an Egyptian pursue us again to pull us back into slavery. Come on, somebody. Think about this. When you think about how powerful the pull of sin is, isn't it good to know that in the blood of Christ there is nothing from your past that will pull you into hell? There is nothing from your past that is greater or more powerful than the God who split the Red Sea of your heart when he put his son on a cross and shed his blood for you. He defeated my enemy. And that leads finally to the fact that we see his glory and his strength. I mean, we see the word power at the end of the chapter. The Bible says in verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed the Lord. I love this. When God does show up and show off, it always produces fear and faith. It's not the fear that runs in fear of being condemned. It's the fear of saying, what in the world have we got ourselves into? Is there any God like our God? The psalmist says, who is like our God? The Egyptians love to worship nature. Their most powerful gods were the God of the Nile, the God of the sky, the God of the desert. And don't you think it's interesting that a generation or two before, Pharaoh tried to use the Nile to kill the Hebrew boys. And yet God says, no, I'll use water to destroy your boys, your army, and set mine free. Remember, Satan tried to use Judas. But all of it was under the sovereign control of God. The night Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he most assuredly washed Judas' feet. And he knew full well that those would be the same feet that would rush off and point him out and sell him in to a false trial, trumped up charges, and the death of a criminal. And yet the scripture says, God ordained it all because we see his glory and his sovereignty, his glory and his salvation, and glory in his strength. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm? Book of Mark? How did the disciples react? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then? is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. So I can't take this passage and go, no matter what's going on in your life, if you'll just lift up a staff of faith, God will split it right down the middle. I, I, don't, I don't believe that's what the text teaches us. I can't take this and say, well, if your Red Sea isn't splitting, you must not have enough faith. I don't see much faith among the Jews when all this is going on. I got something better than that. I can tell you that on tomorrow, when you face something where you feel as though you're trapped, remember, you have a God who is sovereignly in control of every aspect of your life. 
He ordains the good and the bad and uses them for his glory. And the greatest need you've ever had, he's already displayed in the coming and the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. You know what that means? That means I need to sometimes sit back and see his glory. I need to show his glory. And I need to give him glory. This is what captured Paul's heart. You know what Paul told the believers in Corinth? I love this verse. I'm going to end with it. I'll put it on the screen. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we, we have this treasure in jars of clay. (laughs) Paul says, this magnificent, brilliant, glorious God has given us the opportunity to know him and place this immense treasure of his glory in a little old simple jar of clay. But then look how he ends. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You can have it, Lord. Thank you for knowing me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. As we think about this truth, I think about those words we sang a few moments ago. I really don't know of anyone in this room who can't apply this directly to any struggle or situation. You could take anything you're facing, church family, an illness, a broken relationship, an addiction, some past regrets that you wish you could erase, but you can't. I don't know what it is. You plug it in. Anything that burdens your heart right now, you could plug it in and say this. You reign above it all. My struggle, my doubt, my fears, you reign above it all. My inability at times to see all that you're doing, you reign above it all. And that does not create passivity. It makes us want to follow him in faithfulness because, well, he reigns above it all. I'm going to say amen, and we're going to stand and sing that as we worship. If you want to deal with the Lord today, our prayer room is open. Of course, this altar's here. I want you to worship with Josh and the team for a few moments, and then you'll be dismissed. But as you sing, he reigns above it all. I want you to smell the salt of the sea and see the pathway that God made and be reminded that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. To him be the glory and the honor. Amen.